0: You're sad, you're so sad and there's no need to be. My sister's psychic. She wants you to know, I've seen her and she wants you to know that she's happy. I've seen your little girl sitting between you and your husband and she was laughing. Yes, oh yes, she's with you, she's with you my dear and she's laughing
1: was sorry if we're stirred. She's wearing a... a
0: shiny little mask. Christine. Oh, but she's laughing. She's
1: laughing. She's happy
0: as can be. You're very like her. The forehead and the eyes. Is that better? Yes.
1: Shall I fetch your
0: husband?
1: No, 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 no. I'm all right, thank you. Good. Jolly good. I think
0: if you just if you just leave me alone, I'll be fine. All right, my dear.
1: Did you? you really see her?
0: She was there. She was there.
1: (gasps) Oh, you want to play psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim?
0: Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel.
2: I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane?
0: You know, Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled One Good Scare.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another disorienting installment of The Greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 346,
2: Don't Look Now. Between the two of us, just how many versions of this movie on physical media do we own? <laughs> I don't know what happened to my Criterion copy. Maybe you gave it to someone. I might have given it to Shane, maybe. After I got the 4K from you, (laughs) because similar to you, I have my criterions all on display under the TV, but there's not a big space. The case takes up most of the space. So occasionally, like, Lindsay's nieces will come over and they'll just shove them forward. Yeah. And there's been times where, like, you know, I'll fix it and I'll pull everything back and I'm constantly adding to the mix. And then I'll look for one that I'm like, I know I own this. Where is it? I'll pull some discs out and I'll find it like in the back. Like it got lost back there. And I was like, I swear I have a criterion of don't look now. And Lindsay and I were mixing in some new stuff from the flash sale the other day. And I was like, let's see if this is back there. And then she moves some stuff and finds a disc. And I'm like, Oh, there it is. She pulls it out. The last emperor. (laughs) (laughs) So that was just missing. So yeah, I don't know if I gave it away, but I did watch the 4k version that I got from you. And I did notice an uptick in the look. Because it's kind of a hazy movie. Yeah, for sure.
3: Yeah, I don't know how familiar people are with this movie. It's hard to say if it's reached a status beyond people who are super into film. I don't think it really has, which may sound crazy to some people. But if you just ask a group of your friends, I, I don't feel like most of them probably have seen this movie. It's a
2: hard movie to explain to people, too.
3: Yeah. It's a weird movie. It's an older movie. It's become legendary, but I don't know that it necessarily was upon release. I Not that it had bad reviews or anything, yeah. but in terms of a
2: reevaluation, it's just kind of gone to like a whole other level. Not that this says anything, because for a while, anything made before 1990 just wasn't really on my radar. But I don't think this was on my radar until I saw Michael Sarah talking about it on like the Criterion Closet. Okay. Because I think he talked about the famous or infamous sex scene. Right. And then that kind of got it on my radar. To tie
3: it in with last episode's email segment, when Kevin was asking about those Bravo shows and, and those kind of things, and then we were talking about critics' books, and just those general collections or countdowns or lists and how they are a good springboard into finding out about new things, especially when it comes to film. I think Don't Look Now was included in some list of 100 Scariest Movies or something like oh, that. Oh, sure, yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And then you just see that iconic imagery of Donald Sutherland pulling the little girl out of the pond. And you have no context for what it even is. Yeah. And the title doesn't make sense with that picture. It's all very confusing and confounding, and so you feel like maybe it's one of those things that you just need to see it.
2: Yeah, but then you watch it and you s- it still doesn't make <laughs> yeah, sense. Yeah, <laughs> and then
3: you realize that it's all a collection of
2: how did this girl drown?
3: Weird things that you don't quite understand. You
2: see it happen in the movie, and you're still, how did this come to be? Well, I guess
3: she was just an idiot. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> she just didn't know how to swim. I guess even though the water didn't seem that deep.
2: It seemed like it was a very avoidable situation, (laughs) for what we do see.
3: There's weird conspiracy theories, and maybe we can get into that Uh a little bit. I don't really believe in any of them, but people have definitely come up with theories about different things in the film.
2: I'm sure, yeah. It is open to that, because they don't show you everything, and they don't tell you everything.
3: Yeah, there's definitely a lot left to mystery in Don't Look Now. But before we jump into the film, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review when you get a chance. We love to read through those. And of course, please reach out via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your emails on the show. Lately, we've been looking for your little anecdotes with some of the movies especially if you've done a listener request or any of your other favorite films or a film we've covered any stories any memories those kind of things we're running out of time now for greatest october but we would still be interested in any horror related elements too but doesn't have to be anything that you you have in your history that might be of interest please feel free to send it along greatestpod at gmail.com That's also where you can reach us to discuss Listener Requests. Once we get out of Greatest October, I'll run through the whole list of upcoming Listener Requests to make sure we're not missing anyone. Or stickers, free stickers. I think I just had an email recently inquiring
2: about a sticker, so please reach out there. We'll get that out to you. A lot of interest in some new sticker material, given the Greatest October imagery. Just putting that out there. What does that mean? People are interested. They want. We'll give. Well, what we'll
3: give the answer
2: then? There will be more.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, then say that. Don't just say there's interest. <laughs> there's interest. We're not doing anything about it, but there's interest. Well, we move at our own pace. Yeah, we but at everything. least tease that yeah. there's something coming. And then letterbox Zach 1983 and Matt Crosby on there. Anything else? Questions, comments, concerns. Hit us up on Twitter or email. We love interacting with everyone. We're in the home stretch, people. This is it. Greatest October coming to a close. I'll say it now and maybe if I remember I'll say it at the end of the episode. Please, let's go into the last episode of Greatest October with an open mind. Yeah. Don't just look <laughs> Give at it what a the chance. title is <laughs> and say pass hard pass. Yeah, please. If you have not already seen Don't Look Now or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, I believe it's streaming for free right now on Shudder. It may also be on Criterion Channel.
2: Yeah. Well, if not, just come over to one of our houses and we have endless amounts of (laughs) material to watch it on.
3: Yeah. There's no shortage of physical media selections for this film, at least. Don't Look Now was directed by Nicholas Rogue, screenplay by Alan Scott and Chris Bryant. Based on the 1971 short story of the same name by Daphne du Maurier, du Maurier wrote a letter to Rogue after seeing the film congratulating him on making such a strong film from her story. I wasn't super familiar with the short story, so I read it this afternoon. It's only 38 pages or something like that.
2: That would take me like three years to read.
3: I feel like the additions to the story all work, I think they embellish on it in a way that strengthens it because there's not that much to the short story. The pacing is a little different. It all happens very rapidly. Yeah. It all feels like maybe less than 24 hours, whereas this movie, it seems like maybe a couple days go by, but For the sure. pace
2: is a little more leisurely, so it seems like... Yeah, I mean, she's taking flights back and forth from England. If
3: Unless you're actually thinking about it... hmm you could say, like, oh, maybe weeks are going by. When you actually pay attention, probably not, but that's just how the movie feels. It does feel feels. that way, yeah. Because the short story, he's not even working for a church. There's no scenes of him interacting at the church or, or talking about his job or anything. And even though those things all could be done in one or two days, it makes it feel like, oh, they've been here for a while, things are going on, time is passing. It's just a totally different vibe mm-hmm. in the
2: short story. It's it, It's all happening instantly it feels like it's kind of nice it's hard to get a feature out of 38 pages i think this is that good mix where it opens itself up to creativity yeah and then
3: when you actually go by beat by beat through the plot it's not as if there's a ton of things that actually happen in this movie they just dwell on some key moments
2: Obviously, there's been some great novels and classic literature that have been turned into movies. But I think one of the things that's always working against that is people going in, reading the book. This is not what I expected. There's just that expectation that in a movie can never live up to. But when the source material's that short, you're not really going to have that challenge. I was surprised at just how contemporary the short story was because I associate DeMaurier
3: with Hitchcock. That's true. She wrote Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I forget what the other one was. A couple of movies he made. Gothic vibe. And her work has been adapted by other filmmakers as well. So I was picturing somebody who lived and died maybe in the late 1800s. Yeah. And was gone by the 30s at the at the latest. Not someone that had published a short story in 71 and then saw this adaptation. As scandalous as it is, yeah. and then commented on it. It just doesn't seem like that's the same world. But I guess it was. The budget for Don't Look Now was one point three million. The box yeah. office, I have no idea. I, I can't really tell. It seems like it made its money back just by selling the foreign distribution to Paramount. But it's weird. I, I couldn't really tell what it made in the theaters.
2: Nicholas Rogue is definitely a weird director to watch. I would say even weirder to try to explain to people. Yeah. He's got a lot of well-respected works, but... No hits. It's certainly not palatable for mainstream audiences. No. Julie
3: Christie and Donald Sutherland portray Laura and John Baxter, a married couple who travel to Venice following the recent accidental death of their daughter after John accepts a commission to restore a church. They encounter two sisters, one of whom claims to be clairvoyant and informs them that their daughter is trying to contact them and warn them of danger. John at first dismisses their claims, but starts to experience mysterious sightings himself.
2: Now, the two leads, incredible on-screen chemistry. I buy this couple. (laughs) Well, they portray a a marriage that's crumbling pretty well. I know, but you buy it. Yeah. It it feels like there's this history there. Both finger on the pulse of fashion, I would say. (laughs) Some really nice wardrobe throughout the movie.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely blown away by Julie Christie's look, but I don't know whether or not to really go into this, but since I'm me and I'm Mm -hmm. a creep, I probably will. I'm fascinated by her underwear in this movie, (laughs) and I feel like I could get a good five minutes out of wondering if that's intentional, but we'll get wait till we get to that scene, because I'll just leave you with this, and you can think about it before we get there. Oh, good. She's so adult Mm -hmm. and classy looking. like Her clothes are very nice and classy. I think for both of them. And then when she is about to take that bath... She starts taking her clothes off, and you see her underwear for a second, and they kind of felt inappropriate for her, specifically okay. for her. Okay, specifically for her. Just based on what she's wearing yeah. and how she acts and stuff. It, they felt hippie and maybe even Less childlike. elegant. They felt like maybe a little girl's underwear, okay. which I was like, does that have anything to do with Christine, or is
2: that something about her character? It is a very specific detail.
3: Okay, think of it like this. Yep. If Don't Look Now was directed by Kubrick, right? I don't think we would just say it's accidental oh, what agreed. underwear yeah, she's yeah. wearing. I think so, that's fair. Yeah. It just seems to jump out to me. like They don't fit in with what she's wearing. Mm-hmm. They don't fit in with her character.
2: I don't know. It could be nothing. Well, these parents are each finding unique ways to deal with this trauma in their life. Yeah, well, okay. that's so, the whole movie. Yeah. yeah,
3: basically, in a nutshell. So I would say anything is on the table. The movie seems very complicated,
2: and yet I don't really think it is. It's a pretty
3: standard ghost story. A lot it really of it
2: really just keeps you off balance, I think. That's why I think that's why it seems more confusing. As well, movie, yeah, a
3: lot of it hinges on the unknown and mysterious, even though
2: that's just standard for ghost stories. It's not I any know. more complicated than any other ghost story, really. But it is one of the best i've seen at creating that feeling something is amiss and something's about to happen for the entire runtime yeah
3: you literally have no idea what's going to happen or where it's going to come from yeah and they do a pretty good job of making you feel like that the whole time i would describe it as as if you're not quite able to see the whole thing all at once that sensation Mm -hmm. of knowing there's more to it but not being able to see it yet right? and trying desperately to, that's kind of the sensation of watching the film. It's a vintage psychic ghost story crossed with a little bit of giallo. Yes. Some of those beats are still there. We'll get more into that later, but the giallo elements almost seem separate from the story we're watching, (laughs) but they're all present still. In a way, Don't Look Now is a precursor to what I think modern audiences are used to with A24 and elevated horror. True. This is definitely not anything to do with like franchise horror, slashers. There's not a monster. There's not jump scares, really. It, it's yeah. not like... There's one. ...The Conjuring or Insidious or some of these new modern horror films, but it's not like A Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th no. or Halloween or anything like that either. Originally... Don't Look Now played on a double bill with The Wicker Man, which we talked about when we covered The Wicker Man last summer. And I get it. There is some similarities in the sense that you have this man in an unfamiliar place, sort of out of his element, can't get his bearings, and then he's being led around by a missing child or a child. Uh There's a child at play. Something is happening. Things just slowly working against him. It's building towards something that he can't see coming. Yeah, yeah. he can't understand how to how to look for it. A lot of times, people talk about these types of films, and they use phrases like "dream logic," or "dreamscape," or "dream world," or "dream like," or "dreamy." Mm-hmm. And I think that "Don't Look Now" maybe more than any horror film we've covered. This Greatest October really encapsulates that dreamy feel. And we did a movie about nightmares. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. No, I know. (laughs) With the word dream in the title, Dream Warriors. But this really is that half-remembered dream that you kind of wake up from and you're kind of like, what were all the details again? And you're freaked out by it, but you're not
2: sure why. Even the way all the people interact with each other doesn't quite feel like it's happening in reality because it's not really how people interact with each other. It's sort of a Nicholas Rogue thing where I feel like the way he records the voices, yeah. like in post-production, is always a little elevated and strange.
3: Yeah, there's a little bit of that ultimate quality of yeah. people talking over each other.
2: Nobody listens to each other. Right. I would say that's dreamlike, but I guess it's also just sort of like this show. <laughs> <laughs> Both of us are talking but never listening.
3: The listeners aren't listening. Yeah. <laughs> Don't Look Now is an exploration of the psychology of grief and the effect the death of a child can have on a relationship. The film is renowned for its innovative editing style, recurring motifs and themes, and for a controversial sex scene that was explicit by the standards of contemporary mainstream cinema. It also employs flashbacks and flash-forwards in keeping with the depiction of precognition but some scenes are intercut or merged to alter the viewer's perception of what is really happening. It adopts an impressionist approach to its imagery, often presaging events with familiar objects, patterns, and colors using associative editing techniques. The film's reputation has grown in the years since its release, and it is now considered a classic and an influential work in horror and British film. Don't Look Now was Rogue's third film, as a director following Performance from 1970 Mm. and Walkabout from 1971. Although real-life couple Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner were suggested for the parts of Laura and John Baxter, Rogue was eager to cast Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland from the very start. Initially engaged by other projects, both actors unexpectedly became available. Christie liked the script and was keen to work with Rogue, who had served as cinematographer on Fahrenheit 451, Far from the maddening crowd and Petulia, in which she had starred, Sutherland also wanted to make the film, but had some reservations about the depiction of clairvoyance in the script. He felt it was handled too negatively and believed that Don't Look Now should be a more, quote, educative film, and that the characters should in some way benefit from ESP and not be destroyed by it. Well, Rogue was resistant to any changes and issued Sutherland an ultimatum, which I guess he accepted. I feel like more well, directors it, should be doing so, that. Yeah, yeah, I mean,
2: that's the thing. This is the script. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what you're talking Thank about. Thank you for your opinion, but if you want to make Don't Look Now, go make Don't Look Now. They should benefit more from ESP rather than be destroyed by it. <laughs> hey,
3: jackass, it's made up. <laughs> it's fake. <laughs> Shut up.
2: <laughs> it's interesting to hear like the Natalie Wood stuff because this is – The film came out in 73. Correct. We're still like early 70s when you start making this. We're not that far into nudity and sex scenes being in mainstream movies, at least in America. Right. Thinking of like the bigger actresses at that time.
3: Well, the sex scene wasn't scripted. Yeah. So they wouldn't have even known about it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was the 70s. It was all very fast and loose. (laughs) A little more off the cuff. Totally. The film opens on the country estate of John and Laura Baxter. We have Donald Sutherland wearing a curly toupee for some reason for the duration of the movie and Julie Christie. There's a dreamy sort of elegance, damp, Mm -hmm. I would say probably early or mid spring. Yeah, everything
2: is very wet through the entire movie. It's either fall or early spring. It's kind of gray. Jacket weather. It's that weather
3: where you feel like your socks are going to get wet, and then you can't get a chill out of your bones. Yeah. (laughs) Just miserable. (laughs) I like a dreary day. While John and Laura work and read and lounge like a pair of upper-class intellectuals, their two children, a son named Johnny and a young daughter named Christine, play outside. John has begun some preliminary work on a massive church restoration and is projecting photographic slides. In one of the pictures, a figure appears to be wearing a red cloak, though its back is to the camera, and whoever this person is, is seated in a pew, it seems like, but you're just seeing a triangular top of a hood. Yeah. That's really all there is to it. Cross-cutting between the interior action and the activity outdoors allows us to note the similarities between the red cloak in the picture and the red rain jacket worn outside by little Christine. Not the last time we'll have this happen. Christine's red jacket is the definitive image from the film. It's For sure. The totem, it's it's the symbol, and it will come up over and over and over, as will the color red in general. Yeah. A lot of the recurring motifs and repeated imagery are all contained within this opening, You have the coat. You have the broken glass that little Johnny rides his bike over. You have the water, which eventually Christine is going to drown in. And then even some of the motions, the physical motions that you're seeing outside are then replicated inside or vice versa, whether it's Laura throwing something or catching something. A lot of the stuff just overlaps. And I think that what Rogue really ends up with is this great big stew of... Images and emotions and thoughts and it's really just a lot of like what does this make you think of kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's no definitive answers for a lot of the stuff in this movie, whether it's the plot or what does this mean or what does that mean? I think better questions would be how does this make you feel? What does this make you think of? What are you reminded of when you see this? Sometimes you need a little help being guided down the path, but it's not really that hard. There's a lot of red. There's a lot of jackets <laughs> and there's a lot of water. That's a lot of the most important stuff. The secondary stuff just depends on how deep you want to go. The glass yeah. and all I would that say, shit.
2: you know, another element, the decay, given this church that needs needs to be restored. I mean, yeah, well, that could be symbolic
3: feeling. of their marriage too. Totally. Which I think that this idea is explored in other films, Rabbit Hole, for oh, example. Yeah. That was a fun theatrical experience just that intense experience that comes with the death of a child but this one's yeah. much more cosmic and dreamy and not as like in your face probably with a it. little more artistic i think of monet mm-hmm. the painter during this opening because the way that it's just a very like soft lens on the camera so everything kind of is hazy and very blended together and dreamy and those colors are very reminiscent of some of monet's paintings yeah and, It has that impressionistic look to everything. The reflection in the water of Christine going alongside of it is what you're seeing a lot of times rather than actually her running. That's
2: right, yeah. The cameras pan down to the water and you're watching her action in the reflection on the water. That is kind of cool.
3: Inside the home, the book on the couch is called Beyond the Fragile Geometry of Space, which I think kind of fits in with what the movie ends up being about. In an effort to retrieve a misplaced ball, Christine falls into a pond on the Baxter's property and drowns.
2: Yeah. does (laughs) not seem like it was a great showing trying to save herself. Well, we don't really see the specifics of it. I know, which is good, because I think we would have been like, really? Not more of an effort, Christine? She does seem a tad old to drown this easily, but- It's hard to get a read
3: on how deep the water is, though, because... Maybe there's a cold factor. Donald Sutherland is so tall. Oh, yeah. No, it doesn't have anything to do with the (laughs) cold factor. She wasn't in the water that long. Yeah. (laughs) The cold factor.
2: I don't know. It's hard to wrap your head around that she couldn't... Obviously, she can't swim. Well, how useless is her brother? He can't pull her out of the water. He doesn't seem that far away. He doesn't seem that broken up about uh, it either. I I mean, I would say it's definitely a failure by the entire family, collectively, (laughs) Christine included. John, while working
3: inside, spills liquid on the frames, causing the red of the cloak in the photo to bleed and run, which causes John to sense something is wrong and run outside. Yeah, maybe the first hint at some clairvoyance. Yeah where he retrieves his daughter from the water. As I mentioned at the outset of the episode, this is some of the iconic imagery from this film. Oh, yeah. That slow motion water falling off of Donald Sutherland, his face warped mm-hmm. into that cry, and then the guttural, animalistic like moan sound.
2: Well, it's some great acting from him. The first moment that he's starting to sense something wrong, you you can really read what he's feeling in that moment. But it gets weird when he knows exactly where she is. I would
3: guess that that's symbolizing that it's more of an instinctual thing that he hasn't harnessed yet, unlike Heather, who we meet later in the film, who I guess has more of a handle on it. But he doesn't really I don't think he knows he has it. Yeah, Yeah, he's not thinking of it in that way. It's just sort of, I have a bad feeling. Right.
2: By the time... You will hear those stories just in life.
3: Right, yeah. Well, that's why these things work on people is because there are some relatable things, whether they're coincidences or whatever. I don't want to get into what is real and what isn't. It's just as
2: time goes, you hear these stories where people had moments like this. And so this is
3: extrapolating that and turning it into a whole Mm -hmm. ability that goes beyond just a one-time moment. On the photo, the bleeding of the red... That shape starts to resemble Christine in John's arms, we're cutting back and forth between the two. Shooting the drowning sequence was particularly problematic. Sharon Williams, who played Christine, became hysterical when submerged in the pond, despite the rehearsals at the swimming pool going well. Well, I'm sure that the water in the swimming pool was clear. That might have had something to do with it. A farmer on the neighboring land volunteered his daughter, who was an accomplished swimmer, but who refused to be submerged when it came to filming. In the end, the scene was filmed in a water tank using three girls. (laughs) I just like how it was just sort of, well, all right, moving on. (laughs) We couldn't make it happen, so water tank, three girls, the end. In the short story, Christine actually dies of meningitis and not of drowning, which is weird because... Right off the bat, you're eliminating Venice meaning the same thing that it does no, totally. in the movie. Because I think it's suffocating that they're surrounded by
2: water and they didn't think it through. They didn't realize how how triggering water would yeah, be. Yeah, like being here, you're, it's a constant reminder. Because, let's be honest, the two of them are a constant reminder to each other already. Well, yeah. Then yeah, you yeah. have this other added element of constantly being in the water, walking next to water surrounded by it.
3: But it's also believable too because I could definitely see people not thinking that and overlooking it. We're getting that. away. Yeah. Yeah, because why would you think about water right in that way? But then once you actually see it and you see the dirty water and how it reflects and then it it starts to trigger these things that you might not have foreseen, mm-hmm. but I definitely believe it. I don't think that you're thinking I'm going to be triggered by water now for the rest of my life. That is so extreme sounding. And yet Rogue and the cinematography and everything else in the film do a great job of having it sneak up on John and Laura later. It's not some big thing where we're having a scene of them stepping off the plane and they're looking at the ocean and being like, like, oh! "Oh, shit! No, it just slowly creeps back in. Not all at once. In a way, I'm reminded of the raw, powerful emotion in some of the Ari Aster material, because we're confronted immediately in the first 10 minutes of the movie with the ultimate grief, something unimaginable that no parent wants to think about. It's a cinder block of trauma before even being pushed into the ocean of the movie. It's like, here you go, here, hold this. Now we're going to jump into the movie. <laughs> yeah.
2: Go, thanks.
3: Midsummer was the same way. You're given something to think about, and then, okay, now the movie's starting. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Sometime after the tragedy, John and grief-stricken Laura travel to Venice where John has accepted a commission from a bishop to restore an ancient church while together at a restaurant the couple encounters two peculiar elderly sisters who seem to be noticing them and potentially reacting to something until one of them gets something in her eye and Laura has to help them locate the bathroom because the other sister is blind. The two women are named Heather and Wendy, and though Heather is blind, she also claims to be psychic. With full, unwavering conviction and completely on her own accord, Heather offers to Laura the information that she is able to, quote, see the deceased Christine sitting alongside her parents in the restaurant. Shaken to her core, and perhaps more importantly, eager to believe, Laura returns to the table, then faints.
2: This is another really disorienting feeling in this movie is these two sisters because they're bringing positive news, I guess. But there's something that feels menacing about the two of them. Well, the whole thing about the sisters is interesting because I was reading
3: some people's theories online and I don't think they're true. I think ultimately anything evil seeming or weird with the sisters is just a red herring.
2: Yeah, I agree. And just a misdirect from where... And I feel that way by the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, by the end of the movie, I do feel that way, but through most of it... Oh, for sure, yeah. They like, want you to think that yeah.
3: whatever is going to happen is coming from their direction, right. because that's what John thinks. We're definitely seeing a lot totally. of the movie through yeah. his perspective, which is to be mistrustful of them, which comes out even more in the short story where he's MFing them up and down. Not <laughs> yeah. not literally, but because right. a lot of it's in his head where he's just getting so mad at them for filling his wife's head because his wife is starting to get better. are along on this? Yeah. Because we should say that along with all the other cuts and changes and jumps to different scenes, the transition is jarring. We have John pulling his dead daughter out of a pond where his son is standing there sort of stunned, and he's trying to bring the lifeless body towards the house. Her mother comes outside, turns a corner, sees what's happening, and screams. Right. And that's cut into the drill sound, basically, or whatever that tool is, as they're standing outside of a church as he's working on yep the restoration. So we don't know how much time has passed. It doesn't seem like that much. For an audience member who's not familiar with what
2: this movie is going to be, they're like, wait a minute, where are we now? What's going though- on? It doesn't seem that long, but at the same time, you have to get yourself to a place where it's been at least enough that they're living semi I would say mostly functional lives at this point oh like, it's definitely not, like, weeks or months yeah. It's not days or anything like that even it seems like even more than weeks it seems like I think months is yeah safer. I think months yeah. is fair it's hard to tell exactly
3: yeah. it still seems very dreary but De- they're in a different dreary. country now, so I'm not sure what season it's supposed to be. They're bundled up a little bit. It For seems sure. like it could be cold.
2: But they're able to carry on with their lives. They're not living in this like numb, comatose state. No, but the whole point is that John has moved on a little bit.
3: Or he's compartmentalizing Yeah, it, yeah. Or, yeah he to, thinks yeah, he's right. moved on, yeah. and she has not. And he gets very frustrated in this moment because he feels like, oh, we're finally on the right track. She seems kind of like she might be coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, here come these sisters, and they start filling her head up with all this stuff. And even though it temporarily makes her very happy, he's worried that it's just going to prolong oh, this. Yeah. It's never going to end now. Just an iconic sweater from Julie Christie. I love the
2: wardrobe in this movie.
3: Her clothes are very cool. Yeah, for sure. I love also that it's a rocking chair stretcher type thing. I love those rocking chair type stretchers. Yeah, I know. This isn't the only time I've seen it. It must be in other countries or something. Yeah. Especially when they're being loaded onto on boats, the boats, which yeah. is where what happens now cuz now we're in Venice. Even everywhere the, yeah. is these little
2: fucking Canalways. Ca- yeah. water
3: and boats everywhere. It just seems it like seems such a
2: strange world to live in. Very claustrophobic and it's not even just like the narrowness Of these little waterways, there's also low-hanging bridges going over the place, people walking next to you. Right. So now this couple who's had
3: their daughter drown is surrounded by water. The waterways feel more like prison bars, obviously recalling the pond, recalling the rain. It's all surrounding them at all times, but the genius of it is that it's so obtuse that neither of them would be able to recognize that immediately Mm -hmm. and think of it like that. Because, again, who thinks to themselves, I'm going to be triggered by water? It's such a giant idea, and yet... Well, hard to escape, that's for sure. The movie lets us in on that without being too obvious or blunt about it in a way where the characters seem less than believable or they're hitting us over the head with hammers or anything like that. Like, we can get it subtly. Okay, there's a lot of triggering things going on here. Maybe this isn't the best location, the best situation for this very fragile couple to be in right now. Nicholas Rogue decided not to use traditional tourist locations to purposefully avoid a, quote, travel documentary look. Venice turned out to be a difficult place to film in, mainly due to the tides, which caused problems with the continuity in transporting equipment. I didn't yeah, even I would think. think about having to transport a Oh, different. that
2: was um, immediately what came to my mind. I'm like, this would, seems like it would be a production disaster. Laura
3: is taken from the restaurant to the hospital, where she excitedly shares with her husband what Heather told her in the restaurant bathroom. John remains skeptical, of course, but he certainly cannot deny the positive change in Laura's mood and demeanor. The scene set in the church where Laura lights a candle for Christine was mostly improvised. Originally intended to show the gulf between John's and Laura's mental states, John's denial and Laura's inability to let go, the script included two pages of dialogue to illustrate John's unease at Laura's marked display of grief. After a break in filming to allow the crew to set up the equipment, Donald Sutherland returned to the set and commented that he did not like the church— to which Julie Christie retorted that he was being, quote, silly, and the church was beautiful. Nicholas Rogue felt that the exchange was more true to life in terms of what the characters would actually say to each other, and that the scripted version was, quote, overwritten, so opted to ditch the scripted dialogue and included the real-life exchange Love instead. It. That's a nice story. It's a good story because it actually makes the scene believable, and those are the little things that I think illustrate the point you were making about what you described as chemistry between them. Yeah. Those are the little moments that make them feel like a real couple. Real couples don't have these well-plotted out, overly (laughs) written conversations which reveal their inner thoughts about their grief.
2: Now, granted, I'm not saying that that's bad. Well, no, I would say Lindsay and I, the way we interact, it's very much like an Aaron Sorkin script. (laughs) Yeah, but sometimes...
3: You need that stuff, yeah, and it works, and it can be entertaining and valuable, but I think in this instance, Rogue stumbled on something that accomplishes the same thing because if you are really locked in on this scene, you get it. She's lighting a candle for her recently deceased daughter. Mm-hmm. This obviously still means a lot to her. There's much more of a a spiritual side to it, even if it isn't necessarily within the framework of any established organized religion or anything like that. It's just more of a good vibes I want to have because my daughter died and her husband is annoyed at this church. He's all business. Let's go. You already cost us some time by collapsing at a restaurant. Now we got to go back to the hotel, even though they don't need to be anywhere specifically. And he's not being an asshole. I'm not saying it's an abusive relationship or anything like that. He's just, not in the same headspace as her at all. No, no. And that is evident by the scene, and you don't need them talking on and on and on and on to get there. We already got it. We're watching the erosion of a marriage. Each one of them represents to the other one a constant source of pain, a constant reminder of this unspeakable thing that has happened. If you want to take away the horror element of the movie, you could look at Don't Look Now as a reminder that the different paths of grief often lead us away from each other, which doesn't always make sense because you would think that a married couple who loses a child, a traumatic thing might push them together to cling to each other, but that's not really how it works. I just
2: think everyone has their way of self-medicating and dealing with things. Those two are rarely going to be in line with each other, and maybe sometimes when they are, that's actually worse. (laughs) (laughs) It can be. When people are turning like drug abuse. Right.
3: Now, did you actually think Heather was at this church, or was that just something on their minds, in John's mind? I didn't think she was actually at the church. Because they do that cut to her as if she's reacting to them doing something, like so many other things in this movie. It's hard to tell where that's happening and when. And there's other cuts where she's not there. After they're at the church, they come across an active crime scene. This is something that will peek its head up from time to time. Throughout the movie, there is a murderer on the loose in Venice that seems to be outside of our story, but we're not really sure what it is. We don't know a lot. They occasionally come across these crime scenes.
2: (laughs) Occasionally you walk outside and there's a woman's body being pulled up from the water.
3: (laughs) One thing that I noticed on... This most recent rewatch for the podcast was that Laura has packed Christine's ball, the one that fell into the water. I never noticed that before. Yeah. And I have to say, it made me change how I think about the movie and her. It was that dramatic of a thing that I had previously missed because that really hammered home some kind of an inability to deal with what's happened. Maybe she hasn't been afforded that opportunity yet. I'm not saying it's her fault. We're dealing with a much more closed-off time period in human history. Oh, I'd
2: say, yeah. So
3: I'm not saying that her bringing the ball is making me think less of her. It just makes me feel differently about the situation. Yeah.
2: It's much more dire than it seemed. I did notice that this time, too. It didn't strike me as much, but, yeah, I I definitely get what you're saying.
3: Well, because I think part of it is Julie Christie, is, she projects such a cool confidence. For sure. That you're not noticing maybe that we're supposed to realize that she's really How struggling. devastated
2: she is, yeah. Yeah. That is true. She never seems completely out of control or anything. Well, we're only really given that little window until
3: her mood is lifted by Heather and Wendy. Right. So we really only have a few minutes at the restaurant because- And in the first scene, obviously, Christine hasn't died yet. And then when we cut to Venice, we're seeing John first before Mm -hmm. we get to the restaurant. Right. So we're really only seeing her for a few minutes. And then, supposedly, there's been a big shift. Yes. Because of this new information provided by the sisters.
2: If she's completely inconsolable, we're not ever seeing that. No, and I don't think
3: that she ever was. I think it's definitely supposed to be more under the surface. But- Maybe she's not necessarily doing a great job at hiding it, because I think that her husband knows that she's not doing great. So then you get into that weird situation where this news, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. seems to be helping her, but you kind of think it's bullshit. So how long do you let this play out? Because you also have to be afraid of the fact that she will be even more upset if this blows up in her face or if they're scamming her or something like that. That's definitely something he's much more afraid of in the short story. Is oh, oh that, yeah. Is that there's going to be money involved or something. I gotcha. That evening, after returning from the hospital and then the church, John and Laura have passionate sex.
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's really the thing that when this movie does come up, I think this is the biggest talking point Yeah, this scene. Probably. I'm not really sure why. I guess it's probably
3: because it was 1973.
2: It is extreme, but... It's a more explicit depiction of sex on screen than I think anybody was ready for at that time. Yeah, and probably
3: would be now, because there aren't really that many sex scenes now. There was
2: a window where this
3: probably was more acceptable for a while, and then now we're back to the point where people would be prudish about it. Yeah, at one point this was tame. It's a strange scene, because Mm -hmm. we'll get into this here in a minute. For many reasons, though. It carries this reputation that I think that if you didn't see the scene and you only heard this stuff, you would be thinking something completely different. Yeah. It's not as wild or as hot as you might be thinking. It's weird. It is explicit in the sense that they're very naked and also the fact that they do show kind of a depiction of him performing oral sex on her which if you go back to our blue valentine episode that's always a big deal for some definitely i'm not really sure why but whatever so there is the oral sex element of it and then there's also the fact that they're very naked and then
2: they're they're getting into like very weird positions right they're not even
3: positions that you think are hot no there's like a foot in a
2: mouth maybe like a biting of a shoulder (laughs) Yeah, there it's, is. There's times where it seems like they're like twisted around each other, and you're yeah. like, "What is this even sexual?" Or are they
3: stretching? I don't know what to think of any of it because all the rumors, I don't really believe most of them, and we'll get into that in a second.
2: Well, I know there's stuff. about Warren Beatty like insisting on being on set or something. <laughs> like, I don't. Well, know if that's it's true. very similar to Rod Stewart with the Wicker Man. I yeah, guess. yeah, true. Although I don't think I don't think he was actually there okay. or on
3: set, but there is stuff with him.
2: The stories I remember listening to people talk about, that he was fuming about this happening.
3: The famous sex scene between Sutherland and Christie was a last-minute on-set idea from director Rogue, who felt that otherwise the film would have too many scenes of the couple arguing. Most of the scenes around it are improvised. That's definitely not something you can get away with now. Mm, yeah, Let's I have this say. insane... <laughs> sex scene there is sex that's a phone call from an agent mentioned in the short story but it's very brief and they don't linger on any of this stuff Sutherland and Christie met for the first time on the set of this film the first scene they had to shoot was the sex scene as Rogue wanted to quote get it out of the way and then move on to the bone of the matter Christie was terrified so for many years Part of the mythology around Don't Look Now is that there was actually unsimulated sex. Yes. I I don't think that's even remotely true. 100%
2: agree that it just can't be true. But it is kind of, I don't know if fun is the right word, but interesting that that is something that is like- Well, I think part of it is because this
3: scene seemed so scandalous that it becomes a game of telephone. Yeah. Where people just keep upping the ante about what happened exactly- Donald Sutherland and others have denied it. We'll get into that in a minute. So I don't believe it for a second. It's just become one of those Hollywood urban legends that's grown and grown into this thing. When you watch it, you never get the sense that that's a thing that's happening. It's not like Monster's Ball yeah, where the video evidence seems... A little questionable about what, what exactly was going on on the set I totally agree There's definitely some video footage in Monster's Ball where you're like hmm huh, that's interesting yeah. There's nothing like that in this movie if they were fucking for real then they were just doing that for fun because it's not like any of that translated into the screen like you're, oh, there's totally. nothing in this
2: in this You don't even really see like thrusting which I no. think is one of Rogue's point about the scene
3: well, that's why they cut all that random yeah. stuff. That's where he just came up with the idea to cut all that stuff was to get around the sensors because they're always worried about movement. Yeah. So anytime they're about to like thrust downward or anything, he just cuts to them like getting dressed or whatever. I
2: know, but it makes it cool.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a, a stylistic choice that yeah. works and it's definitely something that they recapture in out of
2: sight. It's funny that he didn't do it to be artistic, but then it ends up. Yeah, seeming now like artistic. Soderbergh.
3: Yeah. Kind of recreates it with Clooney and Mm -hmm. Lopez and other films do it as well. Yeah, sometimes working around the censors or working around your restrictions or barriers is what leads to the most creative
2: best stuff. Totally.
3: When he appeared on Inside the Actor's Studio, Donald Sutherland recounted the story of how the infamous sex scene was actually shot and that it was anything but a sexy or erotic experience for those involved. I bet. He and Julie Christie were on the set at 7 a.m. in dressing gowns waiting downstairs while the room was prepared and both had a glass of champagne to calm their nerves. Inside the room was Nicholas Rogue and cinematographer Anthony B. Richmond, each operating their own Mitchell 35mm camera. Sutherland and Christie disrobed and got onto the bed and Rogue and Richmond began filming. The huge Mitchell cameras were unblimped, meaning unsilenced, and the room was oak panelled the noise from the two cameras was amplified hugely at the same time rogue began shouting directions over the noise of the cameras <laughs> to the actors such as lick her nipples put your hand between her legs wow get on top etc
2: uh can you wrap yourself around julie wrap yourself around donald's body and then like get your head in a position where you can suck on his shoulder we need a lot of that was, like, the shoulder theme- sucking yeah, like-
3: The shoot lasted until well into the afternoon before Rogue was satisfied and wrapped. So basically they just rolled around nude with each other while two guys filmed them and one of them yelled random things. (laughs) (laughs) In order to avoid an X certificate rating for the film's American release, nine frames less than half a second had to be cut from the intimate love sequence between Sutherland and Christie. That's not that bad. Nine frames. In her memoir, Miss Aluminum, former actress and model Susanna Moore tells the story of throwing a dinner party attended by Warren Beatty and Don't Look Now director Nicholas Rogue. Beatty, fuming over the graphic sex scene filmed by Rogue between Donald Sutherland and Beatty's then girlfriend Julie Christie, asked Rogue to step outside, which he did, unaware that Beatty was angry. Apparently, Beatty had heard unfounded and later proven untrue rumors that Rogue had cut together his own quote-unquote porn reel of outtakes from the scene and had been amusing his friends by screening it. The 6'2", Beatty, then punched the much smaller Rogue in the face. Oh, boy, yeah. Beatty then helped a shaken Rogue to his feet, examined his upper
2: lip, and then led him back into Moore's apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Even like that story, I feel like, has been twisted and warped over time. Probably. Yeah.
3: Well, that was just her version in right. her book. Who knows what exactly went down.
2: The whole sequence
3: with them undressing and she takes her clothes off and gets into the bathtub and then he's nude in the shower, then he's weighing himself. It felt very reminiscent of Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, yeah. Uncomfortable intimacy of a couple where it's uncomfortable for us. It's comfortable right. for them yeah, because totally. they're just living their own life. You're almost worried that they're going to like fart in front of each yeah. other. It's that <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like that real. That was giving me anxiety. <laughs> I can't watch. I had to like, <laughs> go in the other room and wait. <laughs> this is where we see those underwear I was talking about before. I, I think we already said it. I'm like, oh, let me tease it. And then I just basically <laughs> said it, all of my thoughts on yeah. it. I just felt like the underwear were for a much younger girl and they don't fit her clothes at all. And it just made me think that there there was more to her. Well, the wild thing is she's like so skinny and small. Like yeah. She has to shop from yeah, like, the I, little I know. girl sex. That's what it seems. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There might not be anything to it, but yeah. it just didn't seem to match her clothes or character. So I thought maybe there was something to it. I think anything is on the table. While they're fucking, it cuts back and forth as they're getting ready to go out, which is sort of a weird time to have sex. Let's both shower and get completely clean and then defile each other for a half an hour and then get dressed and go eat. <laughs> <laughs> just pigs. <laughs> Savage. <laughs> so let's talk about conception.
2: Okay. My favorite topic.
3: I think that the Pino DiNaggio score, De Palma's longtime mm-hmm. collaborator, he did this was his first film score, actually. He was a pop star before this. Oh, okay. It conjures up certain imagery. The score is definitely different than what you would expect, especially during the sex. This sort of upbeat, lighthearted music that feels triumphant that coupled with her smile at the end of the film has led people to think that maybe she is pregnant. Cause I think there is talk at one point about that could be, they're young enough to still have more children, that kind of a thing. I don't know. There could be something to that. Yeah. Well, just like everything else, I think it's just something that you can explore on your own. There's right. not really any definitive yes or no. After the fuck sesh, the couple head out into the Venice night for dinner and in route become lost and briefly
2: separated. It's kind of scary. A lot of loud footsteps. Well, very echoey. For sure. Because of all the tunnel ways and-
3: You're always sort of in like a valley of houses. (laughs) A valley of houses. (laughs) Someone cries out as if in fear or pain, and then shortly after experiencing deja vu, John catches a glimpse of a small figure wearing a red coat similar to the one Christine was wearing when she died.
2: Dun-dun-dun. There's just no one around. This is so creepy. Like, the whole way that the sequence plays out, you've got the echoing of the footsteps, they're getting more disoriented because they're lost, there's no one around, and then all of a sudden there's back in the happening section of town. Definitely seems deliberate that a lot of the movie is in areas
3: like that. Right. I, descri- I wrote down a cold, echoey labyrinth.
2: Yeah. It's
3: claustrophobic from the veins of murky water running in between
2: everything i guess you're not surprised that so many people are being murdered in town
3: yeah there's sections that seem completely dark and deserted and anything could happen right (laughs) yes this is it
0: it isn't yes it is it isn't though come on no it isn't just around
1: the corner
3: from where we were i know where we are now. in addition to incorporating the water as a recurring motif that works really effectively and conjures up a lot of memories painful fresh memories it also is just a really really unique and cool location to set a movie like this. for sure for sure because it is a real place it's not like you created it no, I know. People are generally familiar with it, even if they've never been to Italy or Venice, because it's this the one famous city town that has the water everywhere. It just looks really cool, and you can kind of tell why Giallo films were big in Italy, because there's these dark alleyways. Not every city is like Venice, don't get me wrong, but I think this locale really lends itself to these types of stories. Yeah. When they're hearing the voices at night and they're getting separated and lost from each other and it it does seem like a little creepy, you do recall the crime scene. Something seems to be going on in Venice, but John and Laura are lost in their own shit. They're not really engaging with anything that's going on in
2: their surroundings because they're preoccupied with their own minds. It is true. People are being killed in town and they're really not that worried about being in sort of a sketchy situation.
3: I think they're completely oblivious. Totally. I don't even know that they've realized that yet. Yeah. Even though they came across one of the crime scenes. They're still just not even really right. Engaging with what's happening to them. The next day, Laura once again encounters Heather and Wendy, which sends the grieving mother down a path of excited questions. The elderly women are willing to hold a seance to contact Christine. John remains skeptical and is concerned Over the situation grows, though ultimately he is impotent in this moment. He just sits at a restaurant. Is he aware that she's doing the seance? I'm kind of confused as to what he thinks she's doing during this moment. Because remember, he's waiting there, Mm -hmm. and then he goes looking for her, can't find her. It's an embarrassing thing, and then he comes back.
2: Does he know all along that's what she's doing? I feel like he's semi-reluctantly letting her pursue this stuff. Yeah. Like, he disagrees with it, but he also feels like, well, whatever, I'm not going to make that much of a scene to stop her. Yeah. It's the unique fear of watching someone else do something
3: potentially harmful. Emphasis on potentially. Because you're not really sure what's the worst that could come of this, Mm -hmm. although you're kind of afraid that there's going to be either some sort of a twist. Either she's going to be cheated out of money or something, or that
2: it will emotionally devastate her even further. Well, is there a fear that what if it is real? And is that a good thing? No. I don't not think that all. John is considering that it's skeptical. real. Not not, yeah. not, now. Yeah. I will say, the seance does not go exactly how I was picturing it to. <laughs> yeah, I know. She's, like, orgasming or yeah. something, grabbing at her breasts,
3: which is what makes the whole accusation of John being a peeping Tom even more embarrassing because... The other people who are uh-huh. in the hallway are just hearing these sounds, and then he's peeking through doors and windows and stuff. They're like, what the fuck's this Yeah, not a doing? great look for him. But the movie is still pushing the idea that Heather and Wendy could be the evil ones. They're laughing maniacally. We're cutting yeah, to them at random points. Yeah, and it's
2: a weird... Point. Again, the movie plays with your expectations. You're going in thinking there is going to be some sort of connection with the daughter, and it's almost like she's experiencing... The sex that just recently happened i did see people speculate that there's
3: one part where they cut to them laughing together before laura's with them and people were maybe saying that they were able to watch the sex or something but yeah the orgasming yeah. part you're not really sure what she's doing
2: it's all very off-putting but Laura's two rolls with it. just planning an elaborate prank <laughs> we're gonna make it seem like we're gonna talk to her daughter <laughs> But then we'll just fake orgasms yeah. in front of her for some reason. Well, they have a twisted sense of humor, these two. It's a completely normal situation, obviously. i Gov- say so.
3: Heather's frenzied moaning and then John's panicking, running around Venice. He doesn't know where he's going. And I do think that the language barrier is another big part of the movie that maybe will come up as we go. But that's also supposed to put... You ill at ease because a lot of the Italian is not translated.
2: Exactly. And you're like, what are these people saying? Intentionally, yeah. yeah.
3: You don't know what to make of the situation. And in a weird way, John's in a better position than we are because he seems to speak some Italian. I don't speak any, so I don't know what the fuck they're talking
2: about. Like I said, third most Italian.
3: (laughs) Back at the hotel, Laura informs John that Christine, through the seance said that he is in danger and that they have to leave Venice immediately. This leads to an explosive argument in which John loudly asserts over and over that their daughter is dead. Laura seemingly goes along with her husband, volunteering to restart her medication, but she palms the pill and tucks it down her sleeve. Hmm. John agrees to take some time off of work. Maybe we can rebuild ourselves together. But obviously, Laura is just playing along she is now fully down the path with these sisters she thinks that she's in communication with Christine she believes it fully and she also believes their warning but it's clear that John isn't going to however in the middle of the night they receive a telephone call from England informing them that their son has been injured in an accident at boarding school Laura departs for England straight away while John stays on to complete the restoration what did you think of
2: little Johnny's egg shaped forehead wound? That thing was wild, terrible looking. I'm and like, also, what insane. happened to him? It's cartoonish. Did he get hit in the head with a frying pan? Yeah, it's sort of like that, except the coloring is all wrong. That's true, yeah. It was
3: like yellowish and white. And right. It didn't look like a wound. I thought it was a burn or something. <laughs> they tried to set Johnny on fire at school. <laughs> what about sending your son to boarding school right after his sister dies tragically? Man, the 70s, that was just some cold shit. They were just constantly sending kids to boarding I school know. in England. Yeah. I, think
2: I grew up feeling like, and maybe it's just because it was in movies and stuff, but you felt like boarding school was something that happened. And I always remember feeling like, man, that's so cold and weird. I would be like scared that that would be something that would happen to me.
3: It's just a different thing culturally. Yeah. I think some people, especially rich
2: people, it's just a part of- it's just like, get out of here, kid. Life. We need our lives back. You're really harsh in our mail. You're ruining our weekends.
3: Maybe some of our English listeners can email the show, yeah. greatestpod at com, and let us know mm-hmm. if that's more of an English thing, too. It seems like it is. You never question it in movies like Don't Look Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It made total sense to me. That these English people would send their son to a boarding school. I never even would think twice. (laughs) But the fact that the sister just died, you'd think you'd maybe want to be close together as a family.
2: I don't know. (laughs) Well, we lost one kid, so let's just send the other one away. Yeah. Back to basics. Although, were you getting a little John
3: JonBenet Ramsey vibes with this family? Could be. Do you think maybe the brother drowned her in the pond? Or hit her in the head with a rock or something? And they're ch- Anything is on the up. table
2: because I'm not buying this death.
3: Well, the only trouble is the boy is seen several times and he's not wet at all. So he clearly wasn't holding her underwater and he wasn't really that close to her. So the conspiracy theories people have come up with about the brother in this movie, I'm just not buying it. No, I know. He's not really that close to the pond and he's not wet. There's no clues in there like that. I get it, though. I don't get the sense that he had it in him. (laughs) I get where that comes from, though, because the death is weird, and it's not on screen, and there does seem to be something wrong with this family, but I just don't really think that's there. Yeah. I'm not taking the spotlight 100% off of the brother. That's all I'm going to say.
2: There's some suspicion. Yeah. A sliver is allowed
3: to stay. (laughs) But yeah, that's almost a nightmare that's even worse, because then- you get into that thing where if you're the parents, do you just cover it up because you don't want to lose both of your kids? Ugh. What a level of darkness we're at now. Well, go down the, the true crime rabbit hole. I know, there's some <laughs> dark shit out there. Don't Look Now is particularly indebted to Alfred Hitchcock exhibiting several characteristics of the director's work. The aural match cut following Christine's death from Laura's scream to the screech of a drill is reminiscent of a cut in the 39 steps when a woman's scream cuts to the whistle of a steam train. When John reports Laura's disappearance to the Italian police, he inadvertently becomes a suspect in the murder case. They're investigating an innocent man being wrongly accused and pursued by the authorities is a common Hitchcock trait. The film also takes a Hitchcockian approach to its maze unseen by manifesting its protagonist's psychology and plot developments and taking their trip to Venice, the Baxters have run away from personal tragedy and are often physically depicted as running to and from things during their stay in Venice. The labyrinthian geography of Venice causes John to lose his bearings, and he often becomes separated from Laura and is repeatedly shown to be looking for her, both physical realizations of what is going on in his head despite the innovative, jagged editing and the shocking sexuality and the off-balance approach to the storytelling, Don't Look Now still has its share of old-school ghost story in its DNA. For me, I think it haunts you for a variety of reasons, even if you're not always entirely sure why. Logic and reason and structure are replaced by mood and atmosphere and inevitability which I think is a big part of this movie, fate and an inevitability, inevitable dread. Yeah. As if fate is merely a cruel game, and this is a story of the Baxter family almost seeing behind that curtain. Much like McConaughey says in True Detective Season 1, time is a flat circle. Rogue's usage of cuts, visual cues, and mirroring leave us unsure of what we're experiencing and when. As essayist David Thompson points out, John travels to Venice to restore a church, specifically mosaics, a mosaic, and don't look now itself are both collections of fragments that make sense only when arranged by a master craftsman.
2: Well, even for the main couple here, it's as if they're just going through life and time doesn't really matter. Yeah. They're going to dinner. It's like pitch black outside.
3: And sometimes they're eating in the daylight, they're fucking before going out, after they've showered. Yeah, it is sort of a story out of
2: time. When he's going to the church to work, it kind of seems like he accidentally got there on a stroll.
3: At one point, they're just casually doing stuff, and then he says, I'm an hour and a half late to meet the bishop. Right. Yeah, they do seem in a daze, perpetually, which affects every aspect of their life. Nicholas Rogue had employed the fractured editing style of Don't Look Now on his previous films, Performance and Walkabout, but it was originated by editor Anthony Gibbs on Petulia. Rogue served as the cinematographer on that film, which incidentally also starred Julie Christie, and Gibbs went on to edit Performance and Walkabout for Rogue. Rogue's use of color, especially red, can be traced back to earlier work, both Performance and Walkabout feature scenes where the whole screen turns red. Similar in nature to the scene during Christine's drowning, when the spilt water on the church slide causes a reaction that makes it, along with the whole screen, turn completely red, the mysterious red-coated figure and its association with death has a direct parallel with an earlier film Rogue worked on as cinematographer, The Mask of Red Death, which depicted a red-clad Grim Reaper character. The fleeting glimpses of the mysterious red-coated figure possibly draw on Proust, in remembrance of things past, while in Venice, the narrator catches sight of a red gown in the distance, which brings back painful memories of his lost love. Which makes me think of a lot of other literary references. I think that Don't Look Now is one of those films that feels like a novel, even though ironically Definitely. it's based on a short story no, and I not know. a novel. But not necessarily because of how much happens or the content, but
2: just how deep a all depth. of the symbols are and the recurring stuff. It's just very layered. It does seem like one of those ones that you could watch several times and with each viewing you're sort of getting something new out of it that you didn't get the time before. Yeah,
3: but in a different way than just noticing jokes or noticing plot points or things like that. Oh, I'm going to really think about this moment more Mm -hmm. and then relate things back to that moment. And then the next time you watch it well maybe this part i'm going to think about more and how does this relate to that and why does this look like that and why am i thinking of this when i'm seeing that that kind of thing so you you're moving around and finding different nooks and crannies to explore yep i think the whole thing is like some half remembered moment half asleep on the couch on a rainy afternoon in the fall and then you just sort of let the whole thing wash over you and then like an hour later you kind of think to yourself wait what, what was that again wait right. a minute what happened and then you're startled by it and you're not sure why oh the dwarf at the end oh that was stupid and then you're like yeah but it was weird though that he followed <laughs> like yeah i don't know you just kind of yeah you can't quite put your arms around the whole thing agreed red and green are present in almost every scene of the film it's definitely one of those visual films that you really need to experience yourself with oh, your definitely. own oh So let's contrast a little bit John and Laura's struggles. John, as Matt alluded to, he's not actually moving on. It is internal. There's a private struggle happening. He's experiencing some things that seem to be visions. Sometimes it's a literal thing that the audience is also seeing, but other times I think it's just in Donald Sutherland's performance. He seems to be reacting as if he's confused Or if he doesn't know where he is for a second, and then
2: he shakes it off. It it happens over and over throughout the movie. And it's very intense when he's experiencing the feeling right before he goes and finds his dead daughter. But then, yeah, from there on, there's these several moments of he stops and he's thinking about something. Well, I'm relating that
3: all to
2: the grief that they're experiencing because of the daughter.
3: I'm saying his is much more guarded
2: well, you almost feel like there may be a whether it's self inflicted or not, but a pressure to try to be the person that's establishing I'm moving on from this. Yeah, because I if think, I don't, the other person isn't going to. Yeah, I think there there could definitely be a fear. Yeah,
3: that if I don't keep us from sliding off the cliff, we're we're both gonna go definitely. And I have to be strong. And yeah, there is a pressure. Whereas on the other hand, Laura wears it on her sleeve. Oh, yeah. She was very sad and depressed, but now because of the information being shared with her from Heather and Wendy, regardless of whether it's real or not, she can't contain her hopefulness. She's always
2: full of emotion, good or bad. One of the things that's great is how these little moments are peppered in. They're so blunt. Because the day-to-day between these two, they are getting along. Oh, yeah. It's not like their moments between them are contentious. Generally, maybe there's like an underbelly of it, but they're getting along. But then she'll just throw in, like, a well, the last time I listened to you, you said our kids are fine to go play outside. (laughs) Like, she'll just throw that out there. Well, yeah, there's definitely
3: gonna be these lingering resentments and cracks, which I think if you again subtract the supernatural element from the film, then. It would really just be a story of a marriage crumbling in the face of an unspeakable tragedy that has pulled them apart like two pieces of Velcro. Like they were strong, they were together. Mm-hmm. If this hadn't happened, they would be fine. It wasn't like as if they were about to get divorced. Oh, anyway. right. Yeah. They were as fine as fine can be, and now they're being yanked apart. And the grief is tearing at them because they're experiencing it in such different ways. And now this X factor has been introduced into the whole scenario, which is these two twins who say that they're psychically contacting their deceased daughter. Shortly after Laura's departure back to England, John is nearly killed in an accident at the church when the scaffold he is standing on collapses. And he interprets this event as the quote unquote danger foretold by the sisters filming the scene in which john almost falls to his death while restoring the mosaic in san Nicolo church was also beset by problems and resulted in donald sutherland's life being put in danger the scene entailed some of the scaffolding collapsing leaving john dangling by a rope but the stuntman refused to perform the stunt because the insurance was not in order sutherland ended up doing it instead and was attached to a Kirby wire as a precaution in case he should fall. Sometime after the film had come out, renowned stunt coordinator Vic Armstrong commented to Sutherland that the wire was not designed for that purpose, and the twirling around caused by holding onto the rope would have damaged the wire to the extent it would have snapped if Sutherland had let go. So, good thing he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. I'm going to quote David Thompson's Essay, Seeing Red, which comes in the Criterion release of Don't Look Now. Okay. This masterly use of editing, Rogue working here in collaboration with future director Graham Clifford, is especially evident in the scene in which John almost falls to his death from a raised platform in the church he is restoring. After a series of evenly timed shots showing different angles of him at work, we finally perceive... With the help of a slight creak on the soundtrack at the top of the frame, a length of wood falling forward, falling toward him in slow motion. Then, in a shot looking down from over his head, real time is extended so that the anticipated crash of the glass just above him is delayed, creating an even greater shock. John ends up swinging from a rope, the constant switching of angles building up the appalling sense of vertigo all of which was prefigured in an earlier shot of Laura falling in slow motion in a fit of dizziness. Sutherland has recalled how he agreed to perform this dangerous stunt himself after his double refused to do it, only later discovering that the wire that was supposed to make it safe could have easily snapped at any moment. Yikes. He was like Tom Cruise here. Nothing is as it seems. It's a hard thing for us to convey, especially because I think we approach the podcast sometimes... Hmm. As if we're talking to people who haven't seen the movie. That's true. But what Thompson was just describing there when he referenced Christine falling, that's what the whole movie is. Is these reminders of other things all throughout the movie. Colors, Mm -hmm. visual cues, motions that look the same, shapes that look the same.
2: And how they invoke sounds these that sound the same feelings and memories. Yeah, it's all about
3: nostalgia, but not really nostalgia in terms of like longing for something, but more of that painful association with memory. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing, as if you're sort of pushing on a sore muscle or something, as a reminder. Oh, this horrible thing happened, and here's water, here's red, and then all of these echoes of things,
2: auditory, visually, all kinds of echoing throughout. By the way, a lot of people on this production look mad at Nicholas Rogue like after the fact. Like what do you mean I could have been killed? Well, I don't know that a director would necessarily know the ins and outs well, of the stunt true. stuff. That's
3: more of the stunt people.
0: My my wife was
3: warned that, that I was in danger.
0: What? <laughs> it was uh, was it like um It's a kind of prophecy. I wish I didn't have to believe in prophecy. I do, but I wish I didn't have to. È successo.
2: Abbiamo trovato un corpo.
0: I hope it's not another murder.
1: We should go.
3: a woman's body is pulled from the canals another visual reminder of christine for john he just can't outrun it no matter where he turns and now because of the water it's literally everywhere a serial killer stalks venice The way that I thought of it was it's as if there's a Giallo story running parallel to our own story. Definitely. I think some people would consider Don't Look Now its own kind of Giallo film, but I think my joke is funnier, so
2: I like that version. (laughs) You do feel that way. And we finally cross paths with that movie in the climactic scene. Yeah.
3: I think that we're in this weird relationship marriage drama. Yeah. With hardcore sex, now, With a weird supernatural bent to it, but we haven't really reveled in the full giallo ness of it. Yes, we've had our own sex and nudity, but it's not the same kind as in a giallo film, and we aren't seeing blood being splattered no. everywhere. We're not seeing the kills. We're not even really seeing the bodies that occasionally
2: much? we're just strolling through the streets of Venice and we see police removing a dead body from yeah. the water.
3: It's like, Oh, there's something going on.
2: That's here. just part of the scenery. <laughs> Later that day,
3: obviously assuming that Laura is in England still as she's just left that very morning. John is shocked when he spots her on a passing boat in a funeral cortege accompanied by the two sisters. It's simple. It's jarring, it's memorable, there's nothing special, there's nothing creative about it, but you get why it's scary. It's
2: unsettling. You immediately understand, oh, that's weird. Wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, even the looks that they're making is kind of very statuesque. Yeah, very determined, Yeah. straightforward. There's a hint of a wry
3: smile on Laura's face, but it's all business. Mm -hmm. John is crying out. Laura, Laura, no reaction, doesn't seem like she can hear him, and the boats are going in two different directions. Now he's really fucking confused. (laughs) What the fuck is uh, going on? In the short story, you get to this pretty quick, and this is what the whole story is, really, is, oh, my wife is missing. It feels much more of an emphasis on the missing wife element.
2: That is a weird feeling in and of itself, You think someone is gone, and then you see them. Yeah. That's weird.
3: Now, I did have a friend in high school who lied about being on the Warped Tour, and then we sort of like found out that he hadn't really left Pittsburgh. That's rough. Yeah. (laughs) A moment of silence for that situation.
2: (laughs) That's the type of story that, if you're that person, you really don't want that to live on. Yeah. And here we are, folks. (laughs)
3: I'll tell you about it off mic (laughs) now we're headed into this confusing time period for John where he has just seen his wife back in Venice who he thought was in England and the movie enters a long stretch of isolated John material where there's not a lot of dialogue because he's by himself a lot of wandering the streets alone with his sadness maybe being followed quiet Venice At one point, he goes down to the edge of the water on the steps and retrieves the discarded baby doll. That's right. Another visual cue of him pulling his daughter out of the water. Yep. Concerned about his wife's mental state and with reports of a serial killer at large in Venice, John reports Laura's seeming disappearance to the police. He's using a creased Polaroid as her picture. It's like this fragmented picture, which, again, uh, the symbolism, I'm not— It's reminding me of the broken glass, which is an echo later where he kicks out the window as he's being murdered, and then also his son riding his bike over that pane of glass. And that picture of Laura, it looks like broken glass, kind of. I know, it's
2: crumpled. It seems deliberate that that's the picture. It seems sort of damaged. But I'm not sure why. Well, she gets the picture in her hands at some point. There's almost this feeling of weirdness. Really? This is the picture of me that you have? Oh, it's when she's retracing his steps at yeah. the
3: end of the movie, trying to track him down. Renato Scarpa, who plays Inspector Longy, didn't speak any English. He just read the lines he'd been given without knowing what they meant. This added to the sinister quality of his character.
2: Yeah, and when he says things like, I I work on the murder squad. <laughs> there is
3: some unintentional or parentheses maybe intentional comedy in this movie yeah. i definitely think that rogue has a dark sense of humor and i don't want to get into all of the stuff that may or may not be funny because that's up for yourself but one thing that i definitely think is hilarious is when john is telling the policeman about the two sisters and the inspector looks out the window From the second or third floor. And the two sisters are just walking by. Yeah. I don't know. Some of the viewers may not notice it because it's shot from behind and they're not necessarily the focus of the shot. But clearly, the inspector does a double take where he looks out the window as John is talking to him about the two twin sisters. He looks back at John and then he looks back outside again. The camera goes back out and you're like, yep, that's definitely (laughs) them. And (laughs) John's just babbling away. (laughs) It's so weird. That's them. That would be funny if the inspector did say, hey, is that them? Look out the window. (laughs) In a weird way, though, that might be telling the audience, hey, don't worry about the the twin sisters. Get that out of your head. That's that's, that's, that's nothing. Because clearly they're not with Laura at that moment. There must be more. No, no, there's nothing more.
0: My wife got something from these two women, something that doctors couldn't give her, that I couldn't give her, something that she needed, so she went with them. Where? Where, I don't know. I, I, I was outside, went inside the pension last night, where they live. And today, when I went to before I came here, I went to look for it. It's, it's vanished, I, So now she's with them. Why should one criticize you for being
1: worried?
0: Thank you, Mr. Baxter, for talking to me. I am grateful. Okay, I'll be at the uh, Palazzo Vendori. I want you to help me, Mr. Baxter. Try again. Try and find the pensione. It will make me feel we have your cooperation in a real way. I don't don't even know where to start. Start from where you saw them the last time. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. Where did you say? San Nicola de Mendicolo.
1: Pronto? Sabioni?
0: Segue signor Baxter dalla chiesa di San Nicola.
3: John can't ever seem to get his bearings. He can't locate the house where Laura was during the seance. He can't retrace those steps to find where he thought well, that they the might be. Well, the city seems like a maze. Yeah, and everything looks the same. Yeah. There's no storefronts or names of things on anything. So I don't know. How do you tell one thing from the next?
2: And are they not moving out of this place that they've been staying
3: yeah, that further complicates the action. It seems like they're moving from one hotel to another because like one is closing. This pl- yeah. <laughs>
2: I don't know. Why like would you start staying there in the first place? <laughs> I know. I don't know. I think that's another things are ending around them. Yeah, you,
3: we are reaching the end. We are reaching the conclusion, and we don't know of what necessarily. Although you could have made it where John... Follows through with his promise to ask for time off. So the bishop does seem like that's going to happen. Why not just have it where they're checking out of the hotel and then there's some confusion? You could have it almost be an annoyance type of confusion where his stuff gets moved, but then he's like, we might not check out though because now my wife's back in the city. Right, yeah. Because the short story goes through great lengths of establishing what exactly they're going to do. Laura is going to take a flight back because there's only one seat. Mm-hmm. John is then going to travel to Milan and then go by train. He then sees her after she supposedly has been on the plane. So then he doesn't travel to Milan, which then he would mean he would miss the train. So everything gets fucked up. So if you establish that a little bit, just have it where they're going to check out of the hotel. But then he doesn't know if he should check out of the hotel. I don't know. The, the whole thing with the hotel closing, I, I don't know.
2: It adds this whole element of weirdness just with their already chaotic existence. Right. Yeah,
3: because at this point,
2: it seems like
3: Laura is just going to be coming back to Venice. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be going to England, John. Right. So, in other words, you're telling me she's going to come back and just find him at a different hotel I know that that's possible, and I know that people existed for a long time before cell phones,
2: but that just seems so crazy to me. Life was a lot more difficult. That city seems so scary. There She's is no, be wandering like, around. you can't pull up an app on your phone and find a different hotel. just takes a lot more footwork.
3: And they always have long names. Palazzo D. Mike Piazza or something. It's yeah. <laughs> just these crazy <laughs> names. Because John is weaving such a bizarre tale, the inspector is suspicious of him and has him followed, especially since John just starts talking about the murders out of the blue, and the guy's like, wait, <laughs> what? Wait a minute. Yeah, way to incriminate yourself. While conducting a futile search for Laura and the sisters all through the gray and lonesome Venice, John once again spots the childlike figure in the familiar red coat. Yeah. Yeah. It can feel like your mind is playing tricks on you. Like you're not sure of what you're seeing. That's the feeling that don't look now is recreating that uncertainty because even the way they do this shot, I kind of get that where John looks in that direction then looks back and then sort of smiles and he's like, wait, what? And then as we mentioned, the language barrier that all comes into play here, he's just wandering around now, can't find his wife can't find these sisters
2: doesn't really have a place
3: to go no it does seem like he does check into a new hotel yeah. because when he goes to the other hotel to look for laura he tells them that he's checked into somewhere else
2: yeah or something but even there there seems to be they have to like tell him again no we're closed well,
3: well, no I, I think they're just annoyed that he's come back yeah. and is demanding that they talk to him and they're like well there's no one here your wife's not here we're closed." yeah there's this is not a business anymore <laughs> i'm just a guy Yeah, it looked like the one proprietor was getting it on in his little apartment above his office. (laughs) John contacts his son's school to inquire about his condition and to possibly find some more answers, but he's left only with more questions. Laura is there in England and not, in fact, in Venice. Confusing. Well, that's weird. We just saw her on a fucking boat.
2: What the fuck is going on? You would think there would be a little bit more to... Was that her? Like, from his perspective. Did I actually see her? Yeah. I know the phone call changes it, but she is speeding by on a boat. I think that comes across more in the short
3: story where once he speaks to her in England, he completely changes his mind because logically that's the only thing that makes sense. Oh, I must have been mistaken. I didn't see her. But up until that moment, he had definitely seen her. Right. It's kind of harder to convey, especially since he's not really talking to a lot of people. I know. He's just grabbing people on the street. <laughs> Wasn't that my wife? Was that her? Inappropriate underwear for her, right? You would think different. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just your standard cotton whites. <laughs> What's with the blue flowers? We surveyed the locals. After speaking to her to confirm she really is in England, a bewildered John returns to the police station to inform the police he has located his wife. <laughs> hey, guys. I messed up. Look. <laughs>
2: Those women I was telling you about? This one's on me, <laughs> all
3: right? In the meantime, the police have actually brought Heather in for questioning, and an apologetic John offers to
2: escort her back to her hotel. Although she's just sort of sitting in the waiting room. Yeah. The protocol here is a little unclear. Well, I guess they were waiting maybe for her sister to
3: come back to come get her, because yeah. she can't
2: just wander around by herself. Well, that's true. <laughs> she just fall right into the canal. He's is able to take her without check her out or anything right yeah like all right yeah you, you deal with this <laughs> random guy I who know. we thought was the murderer well, five seconds ago the whole police office here is uh, security's not that tight you just walk in five seconds
3: earlier we thought you might be the murderer yeah. now here just take this woman this away from poor us blind
2: woman is now we're gonna relinquish her to your possession <laughs> For
3: about five seconds, you might be convinced that this was all some big misunderstanding, right? Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, (laughs) in the short story, and I know it gets annoying that I keep referencing it, but this is actually interesting. Heather, when he says, I thought I saw you with my wife on a boat, she's just like, you had a premonition. That Mm -hmm. hasn't happened yet or something. But she doesn't seem to think that he's about to die necessarily necessarily. Because I think that she doesn't see what he sees. It's not like he just says that to her, and so then she knows, oh, that was from a funeral. She's just like, oh, you just saw something that hasn't happened yet. It's not like she has all the answers. Very casual. Because at first you're like, oh, well, honey, then just tell him you're about to be killed if you can just know everything. But I think it was just more, oh, you did see us together, but that just hasn't happened
2: yet. But she doesn't know the context of it. Right.
3: Both in the short story and the movie, she does tell Laura early on that she believes John to be a psychic as well, mm-hmm. and that he just hasn't tapped into it.
2: Now, from a viewer's perspective, at this point, I'm nervous for John. <laughs> yeah. You just feel like he's being led into something that's not so going to be do good. you
3: The first time you're seeing the movie, do you assume that this blind woman is in on something that she's
2: evil a lot of people speculated until a certain point and we haven't hit the point yet i'm still feeling very weird about where yeah well and that's what's interesting about the scene right like she's blind and he's not but it feels like she's leading him somewhere right yeah well
3: a lot of people speculated that
2: we were dealing with a coven of
3: witches working in three with the two sisters and Mm -hmm. then our yeah little demon it does have that sort of vibe Yeah. I want to be clear, though, in case anyone's listening along who hasn't watched the film, she does not say that in the movie, where she blows the lid off the whole thing. Right. Because she's not even with her sister in the movie. It's just her and John. In the book, it's all of them. And the one sister's not furious, but really rattled. She's just like, I don't understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. And he just keeps apologizing over and over. And it's the blind one who's completely calm and is like, Yeah, you did see us, but it just hasn't happened yet. As Laura lands back in Venice, John takes Heather home through the nighttime alleyways of the quiet city. Shortly after returning to the hotel, Heather slips into a trance. Her sister Wendy gives John the
2: okay to leave, so he bails. So this part I think is kind of creepy. When they first get to the door. Yeah. They first open the door and it's dark. I don't remember. It's like dark for a second. Then the sister like turns the light on and is just there. Okay. I don't know. It's weird the way it happens. I'd have to go back. There's something that seems see a little unnatural about it. Maybe they're both blind. <laughs> I don't know. As if she was just standing in the dark waiting you for You the never shoulder. do that? Yeah. When I come over here, that's like what's going on. <laughs> I just stand out there. Maybe she
3: was standing in the dark because you can see outside easier and she was waiting for her sister to it get It could back. be.
2: There's just something that seems a little weird about it. The whole movie yeah,
3: is one thing after another that feels a little weird. Yeah, But anyway, Wendy's like, this happens to her when she's about to go into one of her psychic things. You can leave if you want. It's not a big deal. We mm-hmm. got this. So John leaves. However, coming in and out of the trance, Heather pleads with Wendy to go after him, sensing
2: that something terrible is about to happen. And this is where I shift this is where i'm like oh these two are on the up and up
3: yeah which is what i found to be annoying about some of these people's theories quite clearly she's trying to warn him and like save save his life yeah why would she go through the charade of pretending
2: she's in such a panic and even the other sister who's almost being like nah, well this is not that big of a deal is like okay this seems pretty serious i gotta go find this guy wendy
3: though is unable to catch up with john Ah!
1: ah! Wait, wait.
0: It's oh. him oh. back. Oh. Wait, please, Hanna. please Where is he? I couldn't find him. Christine. I saw Christine. He left. Find him. He just warn left. Him. You must find him. You must warn him. him she when told did he leave? He
2: she now. told Where'd you, you go? to leave. I don't know.
0: She told you, you must you know where he went. Why did he leave? Where did he say he was going? She told you. Leave us. She told him.
1: Beware.
3: Outside of the hotel, First, the audience, and then eventually John, too, catches another glimpse of the mysterious figure in red, and this time John pursues it. Now it's a big swirl of memory and imagery and visual association. Christine in her red jacket, a wolf association mm-hmm. in sheep's clothing.
2: That's right. That's what I was thinking. Yeah,
3: yeah. Because he's associating red with a positive memory of his daughter, but he's not understanding what red is actually symbolizing, which is much worse. It's disguised itself in the film because when he thinks of red, we see the flashback of Christine. We think of that. And even though she died in an unfortunate tragedy, it is a memory of his daughter who he loves. So we can't really think of it as like a scary or bad thing. And yet the real moment of truth is like, Oh no, actually (laughs) red was fucked up all along. You were wrong. Laura arrives at the hotel, one step behind in her pursuit of her husband. When she talks to Heather, Heather says, you must find him, you must warn him. There's two simultaneous chases going on in misty Venice. I don't know if you noticed how much fucking mist was on the ground. Well, with all that water. When they were stepping, it was almost as yeah. if it was more than just a gas. It almost was like a solid of mist would just move. I know. With each
2: footstep. They're in like one of those chambers in like Alien or whatever. Yeah. Laura's pursuing John. John's pursuing the figure
3: in red. John finally corners that figure in a deserted palazzo and approaches, believing the person to be a child.
2: I have to tell you, watching this, knowing what was going to happen, I was getting kind of scared. <laughs>
3: <laughs> like, this is creeping me out. I've seen it enough times yeah. where I don't really have that reaction anymore.
2: I don't know. I think it's pretty effective, though. Well, sometimes knowing is worse than yeah, not knowing. Yeah, that's true. Although it was a shock the first time. Because <laughs> I didn't know what the heck
3: You thought someone had put a mirror in front of your face. Yeah. It's me. However, when the figure turns to face John, it is revealed to be an
2: elderly female dwarf. Kind of shaking her head like you were wrong. Yeah. Like, you idiot. You bene, Take va bene. Io amico. it.
0: Take it. Take it. the it. Take Okay.
3: I was wondering if nowadays in 2023 if people would find this to be offensive to little people or dwarves because I'm the movie sure. does make this person out to be subhuman or not human in some way
2: definitely right there's a monster quality it doesn't seem like this person is speaking a language or right anything like yeah that. it does seem somewhat supernatural But I don't know. No, I don't know if it's supernatural, just... I don't know how to say it then. Not great. Yeah. (laughs) Not positive, but something that could still happen. Yeah. Offensive, maybe. Not exactly the person that you thought was going around town killing women? Well, let's finish it out, and then then we'll get to the
3: killer part. Because I'm not sure what to think about that. When John freezes in shock, the dwarf pulls out a meat cleaver and cuts his throat. Dying, John realizes too late that the strange sightings he experienced were premonitions of his own murder and funeral.
2: I think maybe this not-the-most-resilient family ever Right. when faced with death. When faced with certain peril, this family ain't cutting it. I could see
3: freezing in this moment because you're so it is a st- confused yeah. and caught off guard. You're expecting a child, and not only a child... You're kind of re- reminded of things like Pet Cemetery or something where a child dies and just sort of that yeah. haunting thing where he may
2: be expecting to see Christine What did he think way? was going to happen? Obviously, all the imagery pointing to Christine. It seems like he thought it was a little girl that was lost that he was going to help or something. Yeah, something that, like that. Yeah. The Although, movie never you-
3: goes into that weird place where he says Christine right. or
2: anything like that. It never wants you to actually go that far with it. The physics, though... Of this strike. John is pretty tall. Well, he's crouched down, I think. Yeah. Because he thinks it's a child. That like, kind of kneeled over.
3: Yeah, the dwarf is facing the corner a la Blair Witch yeah, or I something. Know.
2: Which is creepy,
3: too. And there definitely is some audio tricks going on. Not only in this sequence, but earlier when the figure is on screen. Where you could definitely think you're hearing a child or right. something. Right, yeah. There's a montage of images from the film. It seems sort of to signify John's life flashing before his eyes. And then we are returning now again to the funeral procession on the water. Now little Johnny is there as well. And Laura does have a little bit of a smile on her face, which is something that Rogue wanted, even though Julie Christie didn't really understand. Because I think initially the script called for a veil, but then Mm -hmm. he wanted to add the smile where... Her mental state has taken her to the place of, well, at least John and Christina are reunited in heaven. Okay. And also the potential pregnancy yeah. theories you could come up with there. So before we get into all that analysis and the motifs and all this different shit, let's, let's talk a little bit about the killer. So I don't know what to make of the serial killer element, the quote-unquote Giallo film happening in the background as I put it. It does seem like the other murder victims were women who were drowned potentially. Mm -hmm. There's never any indication of cut wounds or anything like that. You could say that John gets himself killed so if this dwarf person is the serial killer
2: there's generally a
3: different method. It's possible that They were not going to target John, but John follows this person thinking he's seeing his dead daughter, and that's why he then is killed. Because typically they would not kill outside of their M.O., a serial killer. If they kill women, they're killing women. But I guess you could make the leap then that John is only killed because he gets himself
2: killed. I think so. I think that's fair to surmise. And
3: that the M.O. is different in terms of the murder weapon because of necessity. This person who is a murderer, feels cornered, I think in the short story, the police are actually closing in right at that moment. Okay. And John is killed in that moment, so there's no doubt that that person has to be the serial killer. And the murder victims in the short story are killed in a variety of ways, so there's a little bit more leeway. Yeah. I definitely think that the original intention is that the dwarf is the killer at play. Now, Rogue changes enough in the movie where that makes it a little bit less clear. For sure. It's hard to imagine this dwarf person drowning From full-size adults. From a standpoint. But we don't know the cause of deaths. We're just seeing bodies pulled out of the canals. Uh, that's true. We don't yeah. know. As Nicholas Rogue puts it, quote, grief can separate people. Even the closest, healthiest relationship can come undone through grief. The mood of the film is established by the tragic occurrence of young Christine's death at the outset and then her spectral presence, whether real or imagined, weighing heavily on the events of the film as well as the characters themselves. She and the nature of her death are constantly recalled through the film's imagery. There are regular flashbacks to Christine playing in her red coat as well as sightings of the mysterious childlike figure also wearing a red coat which bears a likeness to her. The constant association of water with death is maintained via a serial killer subplot, which sees victims periodically dragged from the canals. There is also a poignant moment when John fishes a child's doll out of a canal just as he did with his daughter's body at the beginning of the film. The associative use of recurring motifs combined with unorthodox editing techniques foreshadows key events in the film, In Daphne du Maurier's novella, it is Laura that wears a red coat. But in the film, the color is used to establish an association between Christine and the elusive figure that John keeps catching glimpses of. It's great when you see an adaptation of a work and you understand how the adaptation improved upon or at least took the thing and made it make sense. Yeah. Because then you give John a reason to pursue this figure in the first place. Right. Right. What's the association going on? It all feels more connective on a psychological level. You're really digging into this man now and his grief. There's a reason he's doing this stuff. Without it, I have to say the short story was kind of lacking. I didn't really get that much out of it.
2: Well, I also got to add, for a serial killer, not exactly an inconspicuous outfit roaming the streets at night with this (laughs) red jacket.
3: Maybe the trick is that no one would be expecting a dwarf woman. Well, that's true. (laughs) I certainly wasn't. But again, maybe in Rogue's version of events, the dwarf woman is not the killer. That could be. And it's just something completely unrelated. Or it is supernatural. Or it is connected to the two sisters. Yeah. There's all kinds of possibilities. Dumarie's story actually opens in Venice following Christine's death from meningitis, but the decision was taken to change the cause of death to drowning and to include a prologue to exploit the water motif. Again, without it being drowning, I don't really understand the significance of Venice at all. Yeah, The threat of death from falling is also ever present throughout the film. Besides Christine falling into the lake, Laura is taken to the hospital after her fall in the restaurant. Their son, Johnny, is injured in a fall at boarding school. The bishop overseeing the church restoration informs John that his father was killed in a fall. So really just a clumsy family. Well, the bishop's father. Mm -hmm. And John himself is nearly killed in a fall during the renovations. Glass is frequently used as an omen that something bad is about to occur just before Christine drowns. John knocks a glass of water over, and Johnny breaks a pane of glass. As Laura faints in the restaurant, she knocks glassware off the table. And when John almost falls to his death in the church, a plank of wood shatters a pane of glass. Finally, shortly before confronting the mysterious red-clad figure, John asks the sisters for a glass of water, an item with a symbolic connection to Christine's death. Also, you could add to that when he's being killed by the red-wearing dwarf. He kicks out. He's laying down. He's sort of on the floor in a... I don't really know where he is, but there's a little window next to his foot. Yes. And there's more broken glass in that right as he's being killed. I was connecting that broken glass to the glass when little Johnny rides his bike It's another one of those
2: moments, everything seeming sort of off. The physics of when he's being killed, it's almost like he's falling forward and kicking that glass out. Yeah. It all seems strange.
3: And I would say aesthetically his murder is very similar to Giallo films. The color and look of the blood. The consistency of the blood. Yeah.
2: And that's why when you said Giallo earlier, this is where we finally meet and see the one element of it.
3: The two things that you really just need to fixate on are red and water. Okay. That's clear. Red is a stand-in for grief, kind of a catch-all Even outside of this film, Red has associations with anger and violence, anger being one of the stages of grief, the the five stages including denial, acceptance, all that shit, but also the violence and death and blood. I would say that in the film, its meaning is slippery and elusive. It's evolving. It's initially positive connotations because of the association with the daughter, but ultimately a harbinger of death. Like I said, a... A wolf in sheep's clothing, in a a sense. Definitely. Water, obviously the initial association with Christine's death, and then the serial killer uses it as his M.O., and then the Baxter's relocation turns into this empty and futile act, thinking they can escape their problems, and where do they go? A world of water where the reflection of their daughter's death is in their eyes at all times. The plot of the film is preoccupied with misinterpretation and mistaken identity. When John sees Laura on the barge with the sisters, he fails to realize it is a premonition and believes Laura is in Venice with them. John himself is mistaken for a peeping Tom when he follows Laura to the seance, and ultimately he mistakes the mysterious red-coated figure for a child. The concept of doppelganger and duplicates feature prominently. In the film, reproductions are a constantly recurring motif ranging from reflections in the water to photographs to police sketches and the photographic slides of the church John is restoring. Laura comments in a letter to their son that she can't tell the difference between the restored church windows and the real thing. And later in the film, John attempts to make a seamless match between recently manufactured tiles and the old ones in repairing an ancient mosaic rogue describes the basic premise of the story as principally being that in life quote nothing is what it seems and even decided to have donald sutherland's character utter the line a scene which required 15 takes oh don't look now is a film that defies simple explanations even if on the surface a lot of it is very simple There is no one-for-one substitution glossary. You can't look it up and say, well, what is red in Don't Look Now? (laughs) Well, I said it's grief, and that's probably the most popular answer, but it's much more than that, and it changes and moves and evolves depending on the moment and what that moment conjures up in your brain. I would say
2: mostly not good, though. That's fair to say.
3: There's an inherent messiness to the whole thing. I would say like the whole... Thing with style associations, I would kind of describe as call to mind. What does this call to mind? Are you thinking of a different scene in the film? Something earlier? Are you remembering this jacket or that jacket or this moment or this sound? For example, and I don't know, this may actually come up in one of my tidbits, but did you notice that the film opens with John humming and there's that shot of the shower and the visual cues? all from the hotel mm, no. but then it cuts back to them being at their house in england but then later when they're in the hotel and john's sitting there i think it might actually be when he's sitting nude and sketching
2: oh and, he's and that hotel worker comes in a school <laughs> isn't there a part
3: where a woman's crushing a huge shit in their bathroom isn't that happened in the movie <laughs>
2: I don't recall.
3: Isn't there a part where he comes back to the room and one of the chambermaids is just using the bathroom and flushes the toilet and comes out and he just laughs?
2: Yeah. It's hard to figure out what's going on in this hotel.
3: I don't know if it has any significance that I know of other than just displacement and time, but yeah. A lot of the the sounds and images from the opening credits are from their hotel, Mm -hmm. which happens later in the movie, and then you're transported back to the english countryside for the death of christine i think there's just a lack of concrete firm answers yeah
2: which can be frustrating for some audiences probably part of it is when dealing with these things time just starts to blend together and i think we see that sort of represented yeah one of my
3: recommendations coming up later is another one of Rogue's films that I think really plays with the time element a lot.
2: Well, when you watch a decent amount of Rogue movies, you start to see the common thread stylistically, the weirdness that's spread throughout his filmography. I definitely feel like this is the one where it all works the best.
3: Yeah, for sure.
2: This is the masterpiece. Yeah, I've actually seen... A lot of his films. He I've was my s- most watched director
3: last year <laughs> Some on of them, Letterboxd.
2: I know. I've just seen by you letting me borrow them. You've recommended Eureka on yes, here, which after is you let me borrow it. definitely one of his
3: weirder movies For sure. in terms of structure. <laughs> Somehow weirder than this movie. <laughs> I know. Just because it's so random. I, I don't know. Communication is a theme that runs through much of Nicholas Rogue's work and figures heavily in Don't Look Now. This is best exemplified by the blind psychic woman Heather who communicates with the dead but is presented in other ways. The language barriers are purposefully enhanced by the decision to not include subtitles translating the Italian dialogue into English so the viewer experiences the same confusion as John. Women are presented as better at communicating than men. Besides the clairvoyant being female, it is Laura who stays in regular contact with their son Johnny when the Baxters receive a phone call informing them of Johnny's accident at the boarding school, the headmaster's inarticulateness in explaining the situation causes his wife to intercept and explain instead. Much has been made of the fragmented editing of Don't Look Now and in Nicholas Rogue's work in general. Time is presented as fluid, where the past, present, and future can all exist in the same time frame. John's premonitions merge with the present, such as at the start of the film, where the mysterious red-coated figure is seemingly depicted in one of his photographic slides, and when he sees Laura on the funeral barge with the sisters and mistakenly believes he is seeing the present, but in fact it is a vision of the future. A prominent use of this fragmented approach to time is during the love scene, in which the scenes of John and Laura having sex are intercut with scenes of them dressing afterwards to go out to dinner, After John is attacked by his assailant in the climactic moments, the preceding events depicted during the course of the film are recalled through the flashback, which may be perceived as his life flashing before his eyes. At a narrative level, the plot of Don't Look Now can be regarded as a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is John's premonitions of his death that set in motion the events leading up to his death. According to the editor of the film, Graham Clifford, Nicholas Rogue regarded the film as his exercise in film grammar. So that'll do it, folks. The reevaluation continues year after year, and this movie continues to rise in esteem. It's on those sight and sound polls, oh, yeah. both the critics' and the directors' lists, very high. Mm-hmm. It actually rose in this most recent 2022 poll. And I get it. It's, it's very it's, unique. I've never really seen a film like this, and to think that it's now 50 years old is incredible. That's wild.
2: It is definitely beloved by many in the industry. There's tons of quotes about it brought up in interviews.
3: Well, just listen to this list. Okay. Danny Boyle, Ryan Murphy, Lars Van Trier. Lynn Ramsey, Ari Aster, Martin McDonough, Joel Schumacher, Steven Soderbergh, Steven Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, David Cronenberg. All influenced or cite the film directly.
2: There's many, 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 many more,
3: too. It's just one of those movies that it's hard to explain it because you wouldn't necessarily say it's scary, but it just lingers with you and you think about it.
2: Yeah, not scary, but... One of the best movies at making you feel uneasy. Yeah. Not uncomfortable, just worried. <laughs> what, where is this going? Like, Not anxiety. Something seems wrong and I don't know what it is. Yeah. That feeling. Me, whenever you start a sentence. Exactly. Where is this going? <laughs> Panic. <laughs> is he going to finish a thought? Just like
3: sweat mm-hmm. pouring out of me.
2: A movie that... I would compare it to,
3: in a weird way, is Donnie Darko. Yeah. Not that the two movies really have that much in common, although sort of the premonition time stuff, you can a little make bit a case. With that. Yeah, but that's not what I meant. I get it though. It's more of here's a director really taking a huge swing at something, and it just works. And I'm not sure why. I don't know if I could explain the movie. It's definitely a lot of symbolism there's a 99.9% chance it won't work, but somehow it just does. And then Nicholas Rogue had a a long career and much more successful than Richard Kelly. True.
2: Although it is surprising. He never
3: really hit the same heights, in my opinion. There's a few more of his films that I like, some more than others, but this is at a whole other level, and you start to just think, well, part of it's an accident, Part of its talent, part of its luck, who knows? And it just falls into place. Yeah, yeah. And it's something special. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I think it's an essential horror classic. For sure. That I think is way more influential than you would even think on the surface. And you would just have to think about it for a while in a lot of different ways, tonally, too. So let's move into segments and wrap this bad boy up. What are you
1: doing? What? <clears throat>
3: Vincent stopped making
2: picks.
1: Well, how am I going to know what movies to see?
2: We have a wide variety of Gene picks.
0: Gene's trash.
2: I'm Gene. I
3: have three recommendations that I'm going to run through really fast just to keep it moving. If you like Julie Christie like we do, check out her Best Actress winning performance in the 1965 John Schlesinger film. Darling, which is a great movie. I have a Region B Blu-ray. I don't think there is a Region A one. Bummer. I didn't see it anywhere streaming for free, but Julie Christie is the best. Check it out. Streaming rental. If you're looking for a horror film, we already recommended Barbarian earlier this month, but another one that is available on Hulu right now that you may have missed is The Empty Man, which I probably talked about on this podcast, I think maybe in a recommendation segment. Okay, that seems familiar. It's long. Okay. It's two hours and 30 minutes or 20 minutes or something. The title makes it sound terrible. You're thinking of The Bye-Bye Man, things of that nature. It's not like that. It deserved a much better title. It's not the type of movie that's really going to generate a lot at the box office. I don't even know if it had a theatrical release. I think it was pretty much buried. Okay. But it's really cool and interesting. The opening is awesome. The opening sequence. You know how horror films have their opening sequence. Definitely. It's really cool. All right. The rest of the movie, you have to really think about. There's a lot to think about. It's weird. But, yeah. I don't know. The Empty Man is under scene. Check it out on Hulu. And if you're into- Nicholas Rogue, and you like Don't Look Now, but you don't know where to go next. I would say his most similar film to Don't Look Now is Bad Timing, mm-hmm. A Sensual Obsession from 1980. You can check that out for free on Freevee and the Criterion channel. It stars Teresa Russell, who... Rogue would be married to for a while. and which Yeah, is she's why, in a lot of his movies. Yeah, that's why I saw so many of Rogue's movies last year, because I watched a lot of Teresa Russell <laughs> yeah. movies. And Art Garfunkel. And it is also very sexually explicit, which Rogue did not shy away from, I, no. evidently. No, it's
2: really the strangest thing that Art Garfunkel is, not only in the movie, but playing that role.
3: Well, it was a source of conflict between him and Paul Simon mm-hmm. when Garfunkel would do movies and stuff. They didn't get along just in general. Well, yeah. I definitely think it pissed Paul Simon off that he was going off to do movies you when were right. Simon wanted to do music and stuff. But anyway, yeah, plus uh, such a movie that's like so sexual and you can see his balls and mm-hmm. shit. <laughs> it's bizarre. It's a really really grim and dark movie though. For sure. You should keep yeah. that in mind. It is not a yeah. happy movie at all. In terms of the visual editing and the playing with time and all of that stuff. It's the most similar to Don't Look Now, I would say. Yeah. Did you have recommendations?
2: Yeah, I'm going to do one. Another classic horror movie, not in the same sense. I watched the 4K. It is streaming on uh, Shutter right now. Lucio Fulci's House by the Cemetery. Okay. I enjoyed it. I, it's not my favorite Fulci movie. It's not my favorite of this genre, but, you know, it's good at a at certain point you're like th- you watch these horror movies from a certain era and certain succession and the scores kind of start to run together yeah like they all kind of sound the same but something that i like about these old italian horror movies <laughs> is these moments where it's cheesy and creepy at the same time when they pull yeah. that out there's like these the eyeballs in the basement in this movie is that scene right. for this one and that's streaming on Shudder. okay i'm pretty sure i've seen it
3: Sometimes it's hard. I'd have to, like, start watching that one to be able to remember. If I'm, yeah, I'm, I know. I'm 99% sure I've seen it, but there's a chance. Because there's a lot of movies, especially Fulci movies, they have similar Yeah, titles. really. All
0: right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information.
3: Okay, time for email. I'm actually going to sort of do an amalgam, I think, think from a listener named Martha who's written us a couple of great emails over the months and I wasn't really sure which one to read or what but I'll just try to highlight some of this stuff she says a lot of really nice and wonderful things Martha says, well, hello there, stranger. Is it too late to share my proper response? I guess I think there was a little bit of a break between some of these emails. I can't wait to share everything. You both have my heart. I've moved in the past few months and just now set up my business and home. I still have my listener requests and also truly want to be friends. We already worked out the details of that listener request. Did we work out us being friends? As much as we can, I think. Okay, good. (laughs) Good. Our friendship is the podcast. Totally, <laughs> With our listeners is just talking on the podcast, I think. Zach, you are so wonderfully meticulous with detail, and I love every dot you connect. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> now you're seeing why I'm reading this Yeah, really. I've <laughs> been catching up on months of shows. I was unable to listen to until this month. It's been such a delight. I forgot how good Carlito's Way was watching it tonight. I hope to throw you boys a fake party one night. That line wow. threw me for a loop. Dude, have we mentioned the fake party stuff on here? I know I it comes up have. from
2: time to time. I don't know that it's ever been explained on this show, but well, who knows? at least referenced.
3: You could tell me we've said anything. We've talked for hours now on this show. Who
2: knows? It's hard for you to make it years without the fake party working its way in. That's true.
3: It is sort of part of my origin story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought my origin story was all of the good stuff that led to me being a decent person for the first 20-something years, but it was actually the terrible stuff in the early 20s that led to me being this horrible, bitter asshole that I am now. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: would love some follow-up here if there's a little bit more to where you heard the fake party piece.
3: Kindred spirits of the moving pictures, I look forward to hearing from you. Then she asked for the listener request. I hope you have been well. The show has been kicking it hard, and I love it. Happy Greatest October. That intro gets me every time. Definitely. With love and respect, Martha. I actually, I'm just going to read that one. I, I That was mostly just from one email. So, Martha, I know we've talked back and forth a little bit. If you have some other things you'd like to say, feel free to send another email, greatestpod at gmail.com. There's no limit. I've already read multiple from a few people, so keep them coming, people. Stay in communication with us. You never know when I may choose to read one of your emails, especially the people who have been emailing me regularly. Thank you so much for the emails, and and thanks for the uh, support.
0: She's never seen a single Paul Walker movie? That's a huge oh no no. She also doesn't care about Blu-ray. She's a monster.
3: Let's move on
2: to physical media spotlight. Matt, I'll let you go first. Sure. Sometimes I do something special with deluxe packaging. This time I'm going to keep it pretty simple. But it's a movie that I love to watch every October, every Halloween season. There is a 4K. I have a Blu-ray, the Scream Factory version of John Carpenter's The Fog. Just yeah. One of my favorite. Speaking of water, <laughs> water-themed horror. Look, it, it's not that scary, but I just love the production value of it, the atmosphere. It's just such a great movie to throw on this time of year. And every year I watch it.
3: You don't need to say too much, though, because I think that there's a pretty good chance we'll do a revisited of the fog. Yeah. If we keep doing this podcast for enough greatest
2: Octobers, we'd love think to we do will. it. Yep. <laughs> and I love a nautical theme.
3: Yeah, there's plenty of different 4K versions, Blu ray versions. That might be one of those movies, though, that if you can snag it on VHS. Yeah. Actually, but that's the medium. My friend was at a store that's right around the corner from me, but he was in the store and he sent me a picture of a box of VHS tapes and this is before I even had a is VCR. That, that
2: comic book store? Yeah. Oh yeah.
3: I didn't even have my VCR yet. And it was a bunch of horror movies, mm. which is awesome because that's the most desirable VHS tapes, really. I'm listing ones for him to buy. I'm saying buy me Scream 1, 2 and 3. By me Pet Cemetery Seven, Silence of the Lambs, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I was like Pet Cemetery Seven. <laughs> Pet Cemetery Two and The Fog. And I could tell by the logo on the side of the VHS that it was the original wow. fog. It was that vintage yep. writing. So the next time I see him, he brings the tapes over and I'm looking at him and he hands me the remake of The Fog on oh, VHS. No. He didn't even realize there was a remake of The Fog, so he just thought that was The Fog when he saw it. I was like, oh, shit. So I don't own The Fog on VHS, long story short. (laughs) One day. You're like, I wish we would have had that option at the beginning of the story. (laughs) I've still never seen the remake, though. I have it on VHS. I haven't watched it. I've heard it's one of the worst movies ever made.
2: I've never seen it either, but it seems like it has to be terrible.
3: Yeah, there's no way you can recapture the joy of that version of The Fog.
2: Obviously, I will recommend
3: people checking out Don't Look Now on 4K. Either the Studio Canal version, there's a Steelbook version, there's a version that I gave to Matt, and then there's there's the deluxe version that I have.
2: Don't Look Now Criterion Blu-ray, Don't Look Now Criterion 4K.
3: Yes, and also the 4K is out now, I I guess. I think so. I think so. On Criterion. But I've done the movie that we covered as my physical media spotlight a lot this month, so I want to shake it up a little bit. And I'll highlight Godzilla, the Showa-era films, 1954 to 1975, from the Criterion Collection. Hmm. It's a giant book. Wow. Proudly displayed on my shelf over there. Trying to spin my body around. Fifteen movies on eight discs. Oh, wow. So far, I've watched one. <laughs> I was a big fan of Godzilla when I was a little kid, so there's always going to be a nostalgia factor there. My favorite Godzilla is not in that set, which would be the one with Matthew Broderick. No, I'm kidding.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It would be Godzilla 1985, because that's the one when I was a little kid. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw that. I haven't seen a lot of the Godzilla movies, to be honest. There's a fair amount I haven't seen as well. There's a fair amount I have. Yeah.
3: I don't think they're all necessarily no, essential. They're not must watches. It was Spine one thousand in the Criterion Collection. It's a big giant pink book yeah, with yeah. a cartoon of Godzilla on it. It's a pretty cool looking set. So you can always snag that at Barnes and Noble during the fifty percent off sales. Totally. I guess to tag on to physical media spotlight as a physical media news story that best buy seems to be getting out of the physical media game by the first quarter of 2024
2: wow yeah bummer
3: yeah that's another huge domino which it's one of these things really like, sucks
2: there's very few things that i actually spend my money on that brings me any sort of joy and movies is one of the only ones of course and spielberg need to do something <laughs> we need to preserve film people yeah cuz it doesn't seem like streaming's
3: going to do it. Ugh. Anyway, folks, thanks so much for listening. We got one more entry left in Greatest October. Please keep an open mind. It will be released
2: on Halloween. It's been a great season. There's no reason to bring any negativity towards <laughs> it now. Give it a chance yeah. like I gave the movie. I've given the movie a chance and now I love it. Yeah, we're going to see if this is a transformative experience for me. You're
3: ready. Yeah, I think so yeah you're, you were always on the cusp you wanted to love it and I was holding you back <laughs> and then when I d- dove in a couple of years ago you weren't ready
2: yeah I know I this left is you the in the time. dust that's right <laughs> you're still not even sure if it's a bit or not it might be a trick like I'm gonna be like yeah I finally get it and you're like you idiot I was <laughs> messing with you all along <laughs> it was all this elaborate the whole podcast was, yeah. the, was part of it too yeah. <laughs> just to get me to say that i like this movie so you could make fun of me
3: so folks if that's not a teaser for the next episode then i don't know what is
2: <laughs> stay tuned that
3: would be so unbelievable <laughs> And then I just delete the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Thanks for listening. Find us on X slash Twitter at greatest pod. Send us an email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your email on the show. Thanks to Martha for this email. Martha, if you'd like me to read another one, feel free to send more. Anyway you'd like a sticker or have a listener request just hit us up we'll work out all the details right now I believe we are filled up into May or something like that or maybe up until May so there's still about 10 slots left for next year so if you have a listener request don't delay but you still have time to get them in for this year's pricing Anything else, questions, comments, concerns, greatestpod at gmail.com. Find us on Letterbox Zach1983. And Matt Crosby, anything else? Matt. No.
2: This went on long enough. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
0: Life is hard, and so am I. You better give me something so I don't die. For us,
3: Excuse me, what's the
2: story behind this pending paternity suit against you?
0: Oh, that's not a case at all. The woman's a stone-faced
1: liar. Let's not even talk about that. I I pulled out her really early on that one. Sorry. Thanks for coming.